This podcast is sponsored by Cloud Optimizer. As a business owner or IT manager, are your cloud investment costs going up and you don't know why? It's time for Cloud Optimizer. As you migrate your business to the cloud, what you're spending and why you're spending it can get a little hazy. But Cloud Optimizer clears up the mystery and puts the cloud to work for you. Cloud Optimizer starts by analyzing usage patterns, right-sizing resources, leveraging discounts you may not be aware of, implementing automation, and much more. And by reducing unnecessary expenses and maximizing performance, Cloud Optimizer guarantees you a savings of five times what you spend for their service. As you utilize cloud-based services more and more, you don't have to lose sight or control of your spend. You can stay agile, streamline your costs, and optimize your performance, plus save significant money with Cloud Optimizer. Make the cloud work for you with Cloud Optimizer. Get a free assessment and find out how much you can save by going to cloudoptimizer.com. Go to cloudoptimizer.com for your free assessment. That's cloudoptimizer.com. I'm Neil Zacharias, and you're listening to Eat for the Planet. On this show, we try to answer the question, how can we eat in a way that nourishes us without starving the planet? The show features conversations with food industry leaders, health and sustainability experts, as well as entrepreneurs and creative minds who are redefining the future of food. Gareth Broad, thank you for joining us on the Eat for the Planet podcast. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Where do we begin? This is going to be an interesting conversation. So I'm going to start super high level and we'll see where this goes. This is not an easy question to answer, or this could you could pretty much take up the entire length of this episode answering this one question. Why do people who want to transform the food system disagree so much on how to do it? What's your high-level answer to that question? Well, I think the high-level answer is that there's really no answer, right? And that everything has trade-offs, and that that kind of thinking is really difficult for people to, 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 you know, that conclusion is really difficult for people to get to. Um, you know, I think there are a lot of reasons behind that. I think some of it is psychological. You know, we tend to sort of pick a vision, we uh, pick a, a solution, um, be it technological or more political or something in between, and then we get deeply connected to that idea. I think a lot of it is also organizational and institutional. The folks that we affiliate with, the organizations that we're connected to tend to have missions that we then try to advance those missions. And then I'm also, you know, I'm a, I'm a researcher of, in media and communication. I think also our media environment plays a big role too. Um, that particularly the social media environment, but our sort of electronic media environment in general, it really is optimized for disagreement and conflict and not consensus. And so I think for those reasons combined, um, when we're faced with a super complex system like the food system with super complex challenges and different solutions that might work in some contexts but not others, um, that it's really difficult for folks to sort of live in that nuance. And therefore, that's where all the disagreement comes uh, when, when folks are sort of deeply attached to a approach as opposed to another. And and this may be a strange question to, to start off right in the beginning, but is it even worth trying to get people to uh, agree on approaches? Because 
no matter how many times I've attempted or others have to find common ground to see that maybe everyone's not even framing the problem the same way. So obviously they can't come up with uh, solutions to solve that problem if they're not really talking about the same thing. We find that eventually people tend to fall into some pretty predictable camps. Um, and there are multiple, you know, it's not that simple as there's there's the the folks who believe one thing versus the others. I'm sure we can we can help categorize them. Uh, which might be helpful in the first place. So my goal here again today is not to try to figure out what the solution to all the problems in the food system is, um, just to set the intention of of hopefully where this conversation can go is how can we perhaps frame the various uh, complex problems um, and or at least drill down into some of the main problems and then frame the various solutions uh, and try to figure out maybe what people are not seeing or are seeing um, so we can all maybe just open our minds and think a little clearly um, about this very, very complicated issue. So let's uh, let's take it one level down. Um, let's talk about animal food production, right? Because um, I think that's where I tend to spend a majority of my time on this podcast trying to discuss solutions to what is one of the 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 leading drivers of uh, the problems in the food system? I think, and maybe it's safe to say this, but correct me if I'm wrong, but um, I think everyone generally agrees that conventional animal food production or industrial animal um, food production is broken. Uh, would you agree or say that's um. true? I don't think that everybody would agree with that, right? I, I definitely think that there are plenty of folks in that system, um, as producers, as, you know, certainly some folks in government, um, certainly some folks in sort of agricultural research who would say it's not broken, but it's, it's it, that the, that it needs to be optimized, right? That it certainly has problems. I don't think there was anybody who would say, Hey, we figured out the best way to do it. And it is the kind of CAFO system as we have it, but there's a belief in certain segments of the animal food production world that, you know, a lot of the problems are overblown and that through, you know, continued technological innovation that we can kind of tinker our way towards, you know, increased optimization and sustainability. So I, I think that is, and, and, and frankly, I think that's still probably the perspective that predominates in, you know, the powers that be that still run these systems in a lot of ways. Good point. I think, um, yeah, I'm glad you corrected me on that because I do think if everyone did agree, something would have been done much faster, right? So I would say that, yeah, you're right that the dominant forces, call them big food or um, the big food companies, uh, largely still believe in the system. Otherwise, they would have abandoned the project. And I think primarily they believe in the system because the system works as intended in the sense that it's still manages to make them uh, a lot of money uh, producing the food that they produce. Yeah. And, you know, I think that the system works, right? Like you say, the system actually does work the way it's designed to, to work, right? In, in what it's optimized to produce, which is lots of, in, in the case of animal food production, lots of meat um, at a pretty low price, you know, that can then get, you know, plugged into all sorts of global supply chains and, and food pro food products and, and processed food. Um, you know, it's 
made possible by a broader regulatory system that you know does not internalize many of the social and environmental costs as not even to mention the ethical animal ethical costs right but when it comes to workers when it comes to environmental pollution so on and so forth and so you know it works so long as the system around it allows it to work and so that's i think something that could change that calculus if we were to have a kind of massive movement to you know regulate CAFOs and to, you know, uphold higher labor standards and things like that. Um, absent that, however, yeah, I think that a lot of those folks um, are still doing pretty well, right? Producing food and, and making profits for, for companies that, uh, that that's their primary goal, right? Those, those two outcomes, right? The, the, the products and the profits, basically. And it's not like we got to this point overnight. We've evolved from uh, producing food in a certain way, uh, over years and increasing the output of certain farms have developed methods to make it more efficient, increase production, lower the costs. Um, so I guess, would you agree that it wasn't always this bad? Uh yeah, again, I you know, so I'm trying to separate a little bit of my own personal feeling on this, right? So I'll yeah. I'll kind of put my, you know, mm -hmm. my vegan credentials on the table, right? Like I'm I don't eat animals. I'm passionate about these issues, but I have to kind of bifurcate my brain a little bit because I'm also a researcher yeah. and and try to be really empirically grounded. Um I think that yes, the it it wasn't always this bad in 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 a number of ways. Um the scale and scope of animal food production has just gone, you know, off the charts uh, over the last 50 years in particular, 60 years in particular. Um, and with that has come, you know, the, this, the, the, the consequences of industrial modernity are it has produced some what I think a lot of people in this world actually see as really positive things, right? I, I can take issue with them, but a lot of people see it as a positive that more people have access to animal protein than before, right? Um, and that that's been good for certain businesses, that's been good in certain ways for nutrition, although we can have a debate about the nutritional impacts, right? Um, but alongside that, undoubtedly, the scale of the problems has sort of developed in concert, right? And so the idea of, you know, lagoons of manure that can affect the water table, at, at, that, that, that has existed, right? But the size, the scope, you know, the, the pandemic risk that's emerged, all these sorts of things, um, because of global industrial capitalism, um, that, that this has become something that can, the risk becomes amplified. So I think for some folks, you know, it's kind of two sides of the same coin, right? Um, the, the very successes of the system, as some see it as successes, have in turn created these maximized risks, and those are maximized risk to the environment, as well as scale of things like animal suffering, as well as the sort of possibility of broader existential risk uh, around things like pandemics and, and things that, you know, we've obviously uh, been experiencing that over the last couple of years. But that, you know, that that danger of the superbug now that could happen in a small scale farm, too. Right. And there can be 
poor animal welfare in a small and local farm of the you know 1930s or 1830s or whatever, but the possibility for that to become a global pandemic or for the possibility of that uh, you know poor animal welfare to be you know amplified across billions of animals that didn't exist in the same way before this system developed. And is there some way we can maybe list out what are some of the major contributing factors that have helped take something that was uh, common practice for for centuries um, in terms of using livestock as a means for food that then got industrialized somewhere maybe 70, 80 years ago. Can we pinpoint what those contributing factors were? I mean, let, I'm just going to throw one out there. Let's just say uh, increase in improvements in technology or uh, rise in population or demand for more food. Yeah, I mean, those are there's a lot of technological changes that have happened for sure. Um, you can look at on farm technology, uh, certainly a lot of breeding technology. Um, the you know also the the link between agricultural commodities on the plant mm -hmm. side, which then feed in to uh, animal food production. Also, things like cold storage. And, and refrigeration, which has been really central, uh, other forms of food processing. So a lot of those are technological. Um, alongside that, we've also seen um, increased global affluence. And, you know, historically, increased global affluence is accompanied by increased demand for animal products. You know, there's a big debate in academia um, you know, and that I'm often engaged in. And, and I maybe, I used to kind of come down a little bit more on the other side, you know, the side that, that basically says, you know, so much really it's, it's demand that's created, right? That this demand is a product of corporate agribusiness that is sort of creating this demand, creating desire. It's a very kind of Marxist perspective, right? That desires are, are created um, through marketing, through advertising, through you know, uh, you know, capitalist commerce. Um, I certainly think there's an element to that, right? And we can also look to the way that marketing and advertising, you know, has increased desire for all sorts of all sorts of products, but in in food and elsewhere, and in meat and elsewhere. That said, man, the 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 anthropological and the biological evidence around human desire for animal protein, I just I, f I find it to be pretty compelling as well, right? There's something there. Um, and, you know, there are a number of, of works that I've read over the years that have pushed me maybe towards a, a kind of hybrid belief, right? That this is, yes, obviously this is demand that has responded, you know, that is formed as a result of increased supply, but there's also this inherent demand that gets unlocked, particularly in, in moments of affluence, but also not even in just moments of affluence. I mean, you look at, the kind of, you know, a lot of anthropological evidence about the social symbolic nature of meat and animal products. Um, it's, 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 you know, status symbol. And I think that's a, a point that has even been made by some of the great critics of meat, right? Mm -hmm. I think of Carol Adams's work as a really good example, Carol Adams and the sexual politics of meat, where she writes a lot about meat and its connection to masculinity. Um, what Carol Adams is, you know, she's trying to critique that and potentially undermine it, but she's she's not denying that that symbolism is there, right? Mm -hmm. And so 
that I just think these things combined, the technological and the social, you know, have really been what we've seen. These things have been, you know, elements that have been there for a long time, but that's what's accelerated the trajectory over the last 50, 60 years or so. Uh, you know, I'm glad you you brought brought up the the social the and the interplay between social conditions and technology because it's really hard to separate what led to what or what what came first. Um, and I think we can speculate. In some cases, maybe we can pinpoint to to some clear examples. But often, when I when I first started to think about the industrial uh, animal agriculture system or the livestock production system. Um, you know, you you tend to first think about the number of animal lives, the uh, amount of feed that is required to feed those animals, the supporting uh, resources that are uh, extracted for uh, the the basically the process, uh, the the growing, the processing, the slaughtering, and the transportation of those animals. You realize that it isn't just the protein itself or the animal itself that is the entire cause of the problem of course they're they, they sit at the center of it but we've created this um this massive global system that supports it where you know great example the monocropping of key commodity crops basically spraying them with pesticides the damage to land and water that results from that which is in some way has nothing to do with the animal, but exists entirely to feed the animal that is part of the system, right? So mm-hmm. um, I guess what I'm driving at with this with this question as we, we drill further down into uh, what I think is going to be the heart of the conversation is how when you replace the animal in the supply chain, right? So let's get down to some of the current scenarios and solutions that are being proposed. Let's replace the animal in the supply chain. How much does it address the contributing factors? Uh, and in, and if, if it does address some contributing factors, which ones? Can we try to articulate or delineate those ones um, so we can see things a little clearer? It doesn't fix everything. Mm-hmm. Um, that's for sure. Um, I think at the same time, though, we have to be careful um, and where I maybe depart from some of the most ardent critics of, you know, animal product alternatives, plant-based meats, et cetera. I, I think that some folks tend to want to say, well, this isn't going to fix monocropping and this is not going to fix labor, you know, violations and this is not going to fix everything. And, and they say, and so, you know, what we need is not that, right? Okay, well, what, what's going to fix everything? You know, this gets back to the, the yeah. first part of our conversation here, right? Why do we feel this need and this assumption that there is a one true solution here? Um, look, I think that there is, it's, you can certainly find folks that are going to debate on this and, and we can have all sorts of debates about methane flows and whether this is new methane or it's the same circulating methane. Is it short-lived? Is it long, right? The vast majority of you know scientific research suggests that we've got a big methane problem that comes from cattle production in particular, right? Ruminant production in particular. All right. Well, we could make some progress here by reducing that number of, of, of ruminants on land. Um, the feed conversion ratio issues, right? In terms of how much water, how much food is required to feed these animals. Again, we can get into the math of what's bioavailable protein and all that sort of stuff, right? So I'm, I'm not here to say 
this is 100% going to solve all those problems, right? But but there were certainly possibilities for significant efficiency gains that could be made there if we're eating, you know, closer to to the source of of plant-based foods. Um you know, water pollution, uh, certain types of of labor concerns particularly in slaughterhouses. Um then, of course, there's the animal ethics, right? And this is the one that, <laughs> boy, I just find it really shocking at times, but totally not shocking as someone who studies sort of human perceptions of human-animal relations. Um, you know, the way that the animal stuff just gets kind of mentioned, but not really talked about, right? And it's sort of the also-ran of this stuff. And I think a lot of it is, you know, a lot of the you know companies in, in, that are putting forth alternatives often are downplaying the animal ethical gains um, for fear that it will, you know, alienate um, potential consumers. And I understand that, right? Like, it's not necessarily great marketing to have like a sad looking cow on the side of your plant-based burger, right? <laughs> um, but I also think that there is a, a, a real potential to not make a strong case when nobody's talking about the animal issue. And so it might not be the companies that need to do it, but maybe other advocacy groups, maybe scientists as well, right? Which is like, if we take animal awareness, animal suffering seriously, it just changes the calculus in a really fundamental way. Um, and I do take that seriously. And so for me, and, and, and I, you know, for me, that, that changes the calculus and makes me someone who would love to see these alternatives be a bigger part of our food system for, you know, yes, I think there's environmental gains to be made. I think there's public health gains potentially to be made. I think those come with downsides as well. Right. But on the animal ethical side, it's like, there's your, you know, it's not a hundred percent slam dunk and it's also not, you know, calling for compulsory veganism around the world in, you know, the next 10 years. Right. But in those places where the vast majority of our protein, our animal products are coming from these systems that we just know are not pleasant places to grow sentient animals and have them live their lives in these really, you know, unnatural ways. Um, I just think that needs to be part of the conversation as well. And so those are some of the gains that I, I just think that, we shouldn't shy away from, even if we need to be kind of strategic about when we deploy those arguments within our conversations. Um, uh, because, you know, what I often find, I've done a lot of, you know, focus groups and other interviews and things like that with everyday people, consumers, you know. Um, and what I often find is that, you know, people, if they're confronted with the question of animal treatment, they really want to treat animals well. The vast majority of people really want to treat animals well, and they want to think that their food is not harming animals. Um, but they're also really good about separating that out cognitively, right? And just sort of moving past it. So that to me is like an invitation for a conversation of, you know, okay, well, what about, what about, what are some of our other options here? What if you did have the choice for a plant-based burger, maybe not every day, but what if we were to swap it out on Fridays, right? Or go to a Plantega for your, uh, for your, 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 your chopped cheese, right? And so I also just think we're still in pretty early stages around this whole conversation. And so I tend to have a kind of long-term perspective here. And to me, it really needs to start with kind of getting people engaged in conversation about 
what is gained, but also what is not gained, right? And 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 what are the risks? What might be lost? Um, and so, you know, to to a previous question that that you you kind of asked, and then we kind of moved on, right? Like, is it valuable to have to bring these folks together, right, in conversation? My answer is yes, it definitely is. So long as we're not expecting consensus tomorrow <laughs> or ever, right? But I think that's what folks a lot of times think that like stakeholder engagement. The goal of that is to reach consensus and preferably consensus of whoever's the primary convener of the stakeholder engagement, right? Whatever they wanted, how do we convince people through the stakeholder engagement process to believe kind of what I wanted them to believe? I think that's just bound to fail that approach. Um, I think, uh, you know, getting involved in these conversations is really about starting a long term conversation about. What matters? What are our values? What is the world we'd like to see? And how might we even agree to disagree while still working together? And and what are those areas that we do have consensus about, right? So if it's, hey, you know, we really think that this pollution from CAFOs and, and, and the impact it has from an environmental justice perspective on low-income communities and communities of color in North Carolina, like maybe that's an area where we could find some real consensus between environmental justice advocates and animal rights activists and even a lot of farmers because, you know, this does not work well for a lot of farmers either, right? Maybe that's a place where through conversation, through that kind of stakeholder engagement, we could say, all right, well, Let's take that piece and see how maybe a pork alternative might work well in this community or something to that effect, right? But so long as we're not expecting consensus, then I think those conversations become much more tenable. Um, but if, if we're just sort of engaging in those conversations because we want to convince people to believe what we believe, it's kind of a fool's errand. So basically what you're saying is none of this is going to get solved on a, in a Twitter back and forth or on a thread somewhere on the internet. Um, I, I'm, I'm kidding, but I'm not. But I, what I love about everything that you just brought up there is it really shows, and it's one of the reasons I really wanted to have you on this podcast and I've been wanting to have this conversation is because I think in the case of some of the alternative protein-focused solutions, we've intentionally not brought up the animal issue because for years, many people who were focused on that issue felt like they weren't making progress from a communication standpoint. They weren't getting their message across, which is, again, your background super fascinating because you have this in-depth knowledge of the food system, but you also, you know, you're a professor who focuses on communications, right? So, to me, it, it comes down to, with most things, it, it's a bit of a communication challenge because for years, if you've tried to convince people that eating animals is wrong and you've largely failed at convincing people, maybe you've made some institutional change, maybe you've fought for bigger cages and maybe you've passed, helped um, put in place some policies that improve the conditions of farm animals – but for the most part, you know, the number of or the percentage of vegans or vegetarians in the U.S., let's just take the U.S., hasn't really grown that much. So, you know, if someone looking at it from the outside would say you've, you've pretty much failed, right? You, you've not convinced people that eating animals is wrong. Um, you got to try something else. And not to say and not to give too much credit to only animal rights activists, but I do think they, they deserve majority of the credit because I think the 
the initial seeds of the alternative protein boom and interest in creating market-based solutions was born out of the animal protection or animal rights uh, movement. Um, but there was an intentional choice made to change the language. Uh, there was some intention on on the part of several um, organizations as well as individuals in the movement to uh, intentionally not to, to, to not bring up the animal issue, to not make it about you know feelings and emotions yep. and um, and maybe that continues, which which explains why we gloss over the issue. Yeah, I, I think that. I would just argue that I think there's a way that that pendulum could swing a little too far, right? Um, and so I think the critique of the kind of mainstream animal protection movement as maybe f- too focused on just hammering that ethical argument, not providing alternatives, not really thinking. I think that there was a big movement within the animal protection movement um, – towards kind of understanding behavioral economics and nudges and sort of the role of food environments in in the choices that we make. I think all that stuff is a super welcome, important addition, right? But what we also know, I mean, I think you have to keep reading the behavioral economics literature, right? Which is what the behavioral economics literature shows is that it's those kind of nudges and things work pretty well for short-term behavior change, but they don't actually work great for sort of deeper, what we would call, you know, the, the, we often think of the two system model of cognitive, of cognition. There's system one, which is that sort of more automatic, what we call heuristic brain, and system two, which is the sort of deeper, you know, deliberative brain. And it's that stuff on system two, that's sort of those questions of who am I? What do I believe? What's important to me? What are my values? System one is more like, all right, I'm in this moment. What am I going to, what am I going to do? What's worked for me before? You know, what is my environment supporting? Right. And I think what's happened in certain elements of the animal protection movement is they went from only focusing on that system two brain which is we need to make this deep moral argument and we need to transform people's inner spirits to care. And then a lot of folks said, no, 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 that's working. We need to go to system one and we just need to focus on transforming food environments and making the, you know, the, the humane choice. I'm putting it out in air quotes, right? Uh, make, make that choice the, the, the easy choice, right? And it's taste, price and convenience and that's that, right? But I think that we need both. Right. And, and, you know, this is maybe me being a cop out, you know, a little cop out. You'll hear this from me a lot. Right. I tend to be somebody who ends up really wanting to take a little bit of column A and a little bit of column B, but I just see it come through so clearly in this work. Right. And I'll give you a perfect example, which is, you know, you mentioned some of these folks who have become leaders in the plant-based, you know, food movement and in alternative, you know, meats and cellular agriculture, et cetera, you know, was it a nudge that got them there, right? Was it, was it behavioral economics that got them there? Not so much, right? Mm-hmm. These are people who care deeply, who have built their entire identity around ethics, whether it's animal ethics or environmental sustainability ethics or both or other public health concerns, right? But these are people who have built their life around this ethical commitment. And now they're going to say, okay, how do I use those tools of system one thinking of behavioral economics to change other people's behavior. But if we didn't have those deeper 
changes, those deeper value-based changes, then we wouldn't have these people running these companies. And so how do we expect more that the next round of leaders in these movements to emerge if all we're saying is, you know, get an impossible whopper, right? And, mm -hmm. and I think we need to do both. We really need to think about how do we have strategies that transform food environments, that make those default, you know, default options, the veg option, right? All those sorts of nudges mm -hmm. I think are great and can have major scalable institutional impacts that are good for the environment, that are good for animals, that are good for health. But we can't keep our eye off the ball of also thinking about, all right, if we really want folks to make this a longer term change, then they also need this ethical commitment. Not need it, but you know, the research tends to show that folks who stick with plant-based diets for longer periods of time tend to be motivated by something serious, right? Whether it's a serious commitment to animal ethics, whether it's a serious commitment to sustainability, or for many people, whether it's a serious commitment to a plant-based diet for health, that tends to be you know, what makes folks kind of make those longer term changes, but then also to take that next step, which is to help transform their social network and their social environment. To, to have them be the person that says, hey, you know, at my school, I'm going to make a Meatless Monday campaign or I'm going to get us to a default vegetarian at, you know, all, you know, organizational events or whatever else that might be. I just am so convinced that we have to be careful not to, you know, think that, yes, just because a total focus on transformational ethical argumentation didn't work, that, me that means we should never talk about that again. <laughs> I just don't think it's borne out by the empirical. Um, and I also don't think it's borne out by the kind of, you know, history of, of by, by, by the feeling, but also like the history of successful social movements, which tend to really depend on a deeply committed core Right. Mm. You know, we see this sometimes between, you know, a certain percentile. There's some good, you know, research by uh, uh, by Erica Chenoweth is, is a researcher at Harvard who writes about sort of the relatively small percentage of adherence you need um, to sort of be the, the key activist to help push forth a social movement. Um, and so I just think to keep this momentum going, we have to keep in mind the need to continue to cultivate sort of deeply ethically committed leaders um, and nudges alone are, are just not going to do that, especially as we start to look to, to next generation. Right. Um, and so we need both, both end. I cannot disagree with that. And also, I just want to make clear that I think that the choice to focus on market solutions and changing the food environment and behavioral economics is not a, the wrong choice. It was the right choice. Yep. Uh, and it was uh, and it has undoubtedly uh, resulted in a whole new movement to uh, focus on creating a, a sort of an alternative to the conventional animal food system. So it has worked. There's no, there's no denying that that approach has not worked. Now the question remains is, is that enough for us to truly see long-term success? Right. It's also about what's the ceiling, right? Mm -hmm. And I think what we've seen is a bit of a plateau, you know? Um, yes, I totally agree. The idea of me bringing some beyond or impossible to a family cookout 
and getting folks to try that instead is much more plausible now than when I was bringing some of that first generation stuff right mm-hmm. back in the day. And people were like, no, just get that away from me. And then that becomes a conversation starter. And then that becomes a, you know, oh, hey, yeah, maybe I will try it. And right. And I have definitely, I'm no longer the only vegetarian in my family, right? <laughs> in a way that I was 10, 15 years ago, right? And I'm certainly not the only vegetarian that people know anymore in a way that I was for certain people, you know, 10, 15 years ago. The question though has it becomes for me, all right, we've sort of seen this become this really, really niche thing to now this sort of semi-niche thing that has a mainstream understanding, but not necessarily mainstream adherence. We're not really seeing long-term reductions in any substantive way of animal food consumption at the population level. So what is that next step up? I think some of that next step is going to be continuing to make better products that are taste good, that are convenient. I mean, I'm, you know, this is the classic, right? Like the taste price convenience stuff. I would also add, I think for many people, it's going to be very important to see a new generation of alternatives that, that really do deliver on health in a way that I think some of the first generation products, there are some benefits, but I think there's still a long way to go. And there's a bit of the kind of health halo around certain plant-based alternatives that I think has become critiqued and has in some ways, not fully, but in, in part undermined, you know, um, uh, the, the, the expansion. Um, so, and then I also think continuing to need to demonstrate environmental improvement, I think on things like sourcing, uh, as well as labor, right? Like to me, there's a whole host of ways that this, you know, mission driven field can continue to show that it is outperforming the conventional alternative, right? Mm-hmm. Is it fair to, to raise that bar and say, you know, it's got to be better than the conventional on all these fronts? Probably not. But we're asking people to switch, right? And so I think it kind of has to be better in order to get people to switch um, from what they're already doing. Um, so yes, one direction is going to continue to be make these products optimize them, make them better across all these fronts. But then uh, the, the, as the left hand is doing that, the right hand needs to also continue to make a society that cares about these issues. Mm-hmm. Right? And, 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 you know, cares about the environment, cares about animal ethics, cares about workers and health. And so that's why I just think there's a continued really important role. And again, that might not be the role that the companies are best suited to play, that they're interested in playing, you know, probably not, right? But when we're saying, you know, I think a lot about like, when I meet young people, you know, I'm a college professor, I meet a lot of young people who are interested in, hey, I want to get involved and I want to help, you know, advance the plant-based world more, right? And I think the push over the last couple of years has been, all right, then you've got to start working in the plant-based foods industry, right? I think that is certainly a really good, potentially valuable role to take. But but we shouldn't be sucking dry the leadership within the advocacy arm of the community by just pushing everybody into the market-based side, because then I just think we would really lose so much talent and so much passion for folks that can maybe help raise the broader consciousness of society, engage in these conversations, and then also build that the next generation, as I've said again, of leaders of both the advocacy and the market-based side. So so for those reasons, that's, again, why I'm, I continue to kind of 
call for this hybrid approach if we want to get past this plateau, which I really think the data is suggesting, you know, we're, there's a real danger of stagnation at this stage mm -hmm. of like, you know, a few percent to maybe maxing out at like, you know, six to 10%, uh, you know, in the next couple decades. Well, folks are really serious about making that number, you know, of, of the, of the meat market, you know, being alternatives, 20, 30, 40, 50% or more over the next, you know, several decades. I just think we need more than a market-based approach in order to, to make society open to that idea. What you articulated is a theory of change, which says that we can, that the market is, market forces are good, can be good, or can be a positive factor. Uh, changing the food environment, offering more uh, products, making the products better, both in terms of taste, texture, price, convenience, but also nutrition um, should be a goal. Also from a sustainability standpoint, source the right ingredients, make sure we are, we are consistently and in, 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 on a process of improving the products, uh, not just to mimic uh, their animal-based counterparts, but to improve on them. While we do all that, while we make it more available, at least attempt to use market forces to make these products more available, we've also got to bring about some sort of a social change, which one can argue changing the market can change society. You know, back to what you said right in the beginning, one of the contributing factors to why animal agriculture became the way it did is you can convince people to buy anything if you have enough money. Perhaps, right? So if plant-based meat really becomes that successful, uh, or plant-based milk, which seems to be uh, doing way better at this point, uh, you can easily, and we've seen it, you live in New York City, so do I, you can walk around the city or drive around and see multiple billboards now for various brands promoting plant-based milk and some for plant-based meat. Um I'm sure that's having some sort of an impact. That's that's convincing people that it's okay to eat these foods or it's cooler to eat these foods. So there's a bit of that communication, social change. But what you're adding to it is also maybe now as this as it becomes most socially acceptable that plant-based is a legitimate alternative that most people are choosing, we can talk about animals. We can say, hey, it's, it's kind of strange that we consume milk from a cow. Uh, when you have all these other alternatives. And, you know, before you know it, it'll probably the conversation on some of these billboards or the or the billboards from many of the brands will start to resemble what maybe five to ten years ago was an ad put out by PETA. Like it's and it's it's interesting to see that, right? As someone who's watched yep. this come go from oh, anyone was ever talking about animals was a few animal rights organizations to now billion dollar companies are talking about it. Um, so I do think that that dual approach is, is, is the way to go and it's going to take time. And, and maybe that's, I think broadly, I would say the theory of change that I subscribe to doesn't mean that that completes the picture. Right. Yeah. So coming back to, you know, my original question to you when, before we, we sort of went on this tangent was, um, was it what problems does alternative protein solve and what doesn't it solve, I suppose, right? So, and I think you, you kind of touched on that. Um, in terms of the problems that it doesn't solve, some people get so hung up on that that they wouldn't even stretch their imagination to having this discussion about our theory of change or the potential theory of change that we both are exploring at this point. 
So let's just take our personal opinions off for a second and go back into the mode of uh, what the broader discussion is, which is alternative proteins. Here's how I'll sum it up. And you, you kind of did it earlier as well, but so we can kind of recenter this conversation. Alternative proteins solve some, but not all the problems. So it's not a solution. I mean, what is a solution, right? That is kind of what I keep coming back to. And I just, you know, I, I have a lot of these arguments in my academic world, right? Where I tend to be in in a lot of the world of kind of like the critical studies of food and agriculture, there is a very deep skepticism against what is often referred to as techno-solutionism, right? This idea that new technologies are going to solve our problems. And, and there's, I think, some really good historical reasoning that to demonstrate why big technological promises often fail to deliver across the board for environmental well-being, for health and equity. Um, but what I feel like is often offered up as the alternative then is this sort of social solutionism, um, this sort of belief that, okay, well, the technology is not going to solve all the problems. And there are some people saying, you know, that the technologies are going to solve the problems. And so since they're wrong, you know, we need to throw all those technologies out the window. And instead, what we need is a radical transformation of society towards complete deliberative democracy. Um, and we're going to get rid of industrial agriculture entirely. Right. And I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. How is that not just a different form of binary solutionism. Um, and I, I just think it's also quite unfair at times. And, and I, I do think that there, there are, there's a leg to stand on, right. In terms of, um, critiquing some of these alternatives for being overhyped, right. I think that, that, that is a legitimate critique that can get made, um, that, you know, that these are offered up, particularly when you still to see the, the PR that gets sent out to some of the big investors and, you know, the Ted talk kind of circuit, right. Um, that, that there's this push to kind of want to say, this is the solution. Right. But I, my experience has been in, in getting to know folks working in these industries, getting to know folks that are trying to figure out the intricacies of food systems, you know, that there's not a belief that this is a single solution. Um, and so I really wish that um, some of those sort of most ardent critiques of these alternatives, A, would, would talk to more folks who aren't just given the TED talk version, right? Talk to mm -hmm. some of the folks that are really in the nitty gritty that are, that are recognizing that this needs to be kind of a, a both end approach, that it's not a single solution, that we've got a long way to go, that we have major, you know, improvements that are possible on the supply chain side, that, that there's no guarantee that the, the, you know, that economic development is going to be more equitable. And there are folks that are working on this stuff. They often get overshadowed by the loudest voices in the room who tend to be, you know, kind of the, like the big investor speak, the sort of <laughs> Silicon Valley speak at times, but also by journalistic coverage, right? Which I think is just naturally attracted to these big flashy kind of headlines. Um, so I think part of the problem rests in the folks that are doing the hype. But I think also I really would, have called and continue to call on some of my colleagues who then just dismiss this stuff as bad because it doesn't match the 
most hyperbolic projections, I would really call on them to, you know, listen to your podcast, right? To, to talk to folks that are doing this work, that are recognizing that this is an emerging arena that offers partial solutions um, that most people who see it as, as a way that, you know, that there are real benefits to be had here, um, but, but also that, that there's a lot that, that won't get done, right? And, the, and the, the one other thing I would add, you were sort of talking about what I see as the role for markets, right? And, and I do see a role for markets, for sure. Um, if I were to create a system from scratch, would it be this system? Definitely not, right? Um, uh, economically, socially, there is a lot that I would change, right? But I do think that we have to recognize that you need to kind of transform systems while you're in them mm-hmm. to create new systems, right? That, uh, that, that you, if you just try to operate completely outside of the system, A, you're actually never really totally outside of the system has been my, you know, sort of conclusion when I see folks who say, hey, I'm doing this completely out of the system. I'm like, actually, you know, you're getting funding from somewhere, right? Like you're probably tied up into some philanthropic, you know, flows of money or power, right? We're all, we're all tied up in it in some way, right? Um, so, so that's one. I think there's a role for markets here. But the other piece of this, I would say, if the folks who are kind of critical of markets orientations and of Silicon Valley culture and all that sort of stuff. I don't see why that means you should also be completely dismissive of technology, right? I really think we need a delinking of these technologies from the economic structures where possible. And we need to figure out how do we make these technologies work, not just for the market actors, but for people and for the planet. And for the environment, the the companies are going to continue to pursue their interests. And there might be some positive benefits that come through that for those other sectors of society. But I'm not expecting these market actors to operate like they are the public sector or like their philanthropy. Right. Um, and so that's why rather than say no ban sell agriculture. Right. As I just saw a video <laughs> from. Uh, La Via Campesina, a European branch, I just watched the video where they're saying we should have a precautionary ban on cellular agriculture because it's just these bad corporations doing bad things. And I'm like, why not advocate for community control of cellular agriculture and, you know, and, and different forms of public investment that would, you know, lead to more open knowledge sharing and open IP. I mean, there are other ways. I, I just feel like there's there's elements of, you know, what we might call the kind of progressive lefty foodie movement that has really had a hard time seeing the value of technology. I think it's often lacking a real theory of technology because of course there are certain technologies that they'll fully embrace, right? I think there's a a lack of a real kind of theory of technology here. Um, And so I think we just need a really closer focus. I mean, I know I'm bringing us on tangents, right? But I think about it a lot over the last couple of years and thinking about vaccines as another example, Mm. right? Like, I think that the COVID-19 vaccine, you know, developed by folks like Moderna and Pfizer and others, as well as other, you know, some state-led initiatives that have gone on around the world, right? But this mRNA technology, right? To me, wow, that stuff is amazing. And it has been an enormous boon to the world. And if not for it, we'd be in, in way worse shape, right? At the same time, 
there still exists global vaccine apartheid, right? There still exists many nations around this world that have little to no access to these vaccines um, that also don't trust the vaccine manufacturers, including within the US, right? And so I think we need to ask those questions, right? Like, all right, is the problem the vaccine or is the problem some of the social, political, and economic systems that lead to this inequitable distribution and a lack of trust within these vaccines? Okay, well, if it's the latter, that's what I think, right? Mm-hmm. How do we do better here, right? How do we think about public involvement, public investment, both financially and socially and culturally in science and technology in ways that allows us to make you know, science work for people? And I just think it's a losing proposition, frankly, to say, throw out, you know, throw out <laughs> new technological innovations. Um, and, and while that's maybe straw manning a little bit, the argument that gets made, frankly, at times I feel like it's, it's not so much a straw man. I, I just see too much of it in the work that I do and, and the time that I spend following this space. Um, so yeah, I really believe that. And, and I think there are allies within the alternative protein world who see it that way too. Some are working from a market-based perspective, but also others that are trying to craft that space in the nonprofit world, for instance, um, to ensure that these tools are equitably, you know, distributed and 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 communicated in ways that people trust and understand, um, and and gets people involved in that process. And so, you know, there's this kind of fancy term that gets used in in social science of of uh, social science of science um, called mm-hmm. sociotechnical systems, right? And it's really, and, and that's what I, that's kind of my theory of change, right? That it needs to be not a technical fix, not a social fix, but a socio-technical solution. And to me, that's kind of really our only hope when you, you know, so this going back to what your question really was, was sort of, is this a solution? Is this not a solution? Well, I really think you kind of need both sides of these to create socio-technical solutions again i'm i'm hesitant to use that word because it suggests it's kind of problem solved right but but for lack of a better word i'll go with that you know i I love everything you just articulated i think that i'm most surprised that people are so sure that they're right about everything and as i say that i also appreciate them for their views because by i've learned a lot from some of their views um because they the, the, the only criticism I tend to sometimes have is that they don't see the entire picture and they don't see the scope of possibilities and are more reactionary than actually solutionary. And I think it's easy. So, for example, it's easy to watch a CEO of some, you know, u- new unicorn startup in the alternative protein space um, at a conference or speak on stage and speak in very certain terms about the technology, about the the future, about its potential positive impact. And what you'll rarely hear is um, um, them outlining any risks or any uh, potential negative externalities from their technology or their business or its reliance on certain um, crops or um, their reliance on certain uh, sources of uh, feed or, or whatever it might be. Because, you know, partly they're not there to do that. They're there to sell their company to the widest um, group of uh, wealthy investors, potentially, and to get consumers to want to try their food products. So you know, they'll spin the most positive, and, and I get it, right? That's, if, you, if you're trying to make your business grow, 
you're not going to be the one telling everyone what's what's potentially wrong with it. Uh, you'll you'll wait for others to do that, right? So I can totally see why people watching someone um, speaking in such certain terms triggers them into um, doubting the entire space, doubting the legitimacy of the technology itself, the intentions of the people uh, who lead these companies, the intention of the investors who pour money into these companies, uh, even if they do it in the name of social impact or environmental impact, because, you know, no one invests without hoping on a, expecting a return. And somehow what maybe started off with the most positive um, so food systems change uh, intentions uh, gets framed by its critics as being the next scary thing we should all be afraid of and we need to ban the whole damn thing because uh, it's bad. Again, you're making a decision based on limited information, based on some people, and I'm, I'm not saying it isn't true. There are several assholes in this space. <laughs> there are a lot of people who really don't care about making an impact, who are now, uh, who really think that, you know, they can they can jump on the bandwagon and and potentially attach themselves to this this uh, hockey stick growth or of sorts that we're seeing at least from an investment standpoint at this stage. Because when it comes to impact, as we discussed earlier, we're still a long way off from actually uh, getting people to eat less animals, um, and there's still a long way to go. So my whole point is what I'm trying to say is that I'm just confused why people are so certain about everything. All I all I think is we can all benefit from saying we hold certain beliefs, we value some things, and we recognize that there are some potential negatives and we should be aware of them because if we aren't, we aren't going to work to make the system better. Even if it takes the animal out of the supply chain, we need to still address workers' rights and we need to address labor problems and land use and a whole host of other issues that don't necessarily get solved because you're making meat from peas and not from a cow or a cow. Why are people so sure about everything? I mean, you know, I I think we touched on this a little bit at the beginning. And so I'll just sort of reiterate, I think, always like what, what are the incentives, right, in our society right now? I think our, we are incentivized in, in so many different ways in our institutions, in our media environment, in many of our interpersonal dynamics as well to be sure, right? To have your take, right? I mean, I, I, I might be overestimating the influence of social media, but I don't think I am. I really think the last decade, the influence of the way that, that social media has shaped discourse generally, but particularly journalistic discourse, which, you know, journalists spend more time on Twitter than anybody, right? And when we think about the way that, that you know, these kinds of stories about alternative protein, for instance, are often filtered through the lens of journalism. And journalism has always had all sorts of biases, right? Um, you know, the classic, you know, if it bleeds, it leads kind of stuff and, um, you know, incentives to sell in papers, right? But the specific incentives of the social media environment to incentivize takes that do one of two things, get lots of people to love it, to like it, to retweet it on Twitter, or 
just as good from the perspective of the, you know, SEO folks and the folks looking on the back end, a take that people hate, right? Because if it hates it and it's getting all those quote tweets and people are dunking on it, that's just as good for traffic, right? And so I really think there has been this incentivization, incentivizing of these dynamics of a very strict binary thinking that then they don't form from nowhere, right? They're actually already playing off of some of these innate psychological tendencies that we already have towards kind of in-group, out-group stuff. And then I would say, you know, where we have traditionally looked for some more balanced perspectives on this stuff, research, academia, I got to tell you, it's tough sometimes to tell the difference between academic discourse and social media discourse and journalistic discourse <laughs> these days. And, and I feel it too, right? I mean, I think we are, um, you know, there's a, there's a, a good book uh, called The Ideas Industry by a guy named um, da- Daniel Dresner. Um, the Ideas Industry, how pessimist partisans and plutocrats are transforming the marketplace of ideas. And he, he may, his general thesis is, you know, that we, we no longer have a world. We used to really incentivize people to be particularly academics, but also sort of, you know, pu- to people in journalism to be what he called public intellectuals. And now instead of incentivizing public intellectuals, we incentivize what he calls thought leaders, right? And I think we use that term thought leader sometimes in positive ways. He's using it in a way that he sees it as, as having some real problems, right? And the, I, the key thing about thought leaders is they have one big idea and they hit the circuit with it, right? <laughs> and whereas public intellectuals... And, and I think we have to be careful, and I think he's careful not to sort of glamorize and glorify the, the, or the old days, right? But the, the notion of the public intellectual is one who is a little more nuanced, a little more rigorous, a little more open to changing their mind, a, a little bit more of a generalist, right? Not just like, I am the alt-protein guy, right? But rather, mm-hmm. I think about food and I think about society and culture and here's this and I get into this, right? And so, and he, you know, uh, Dresner as, as well as, you know, others who have written, you know, about about this, you know, at the same time as I think digital media, social media is wonderful in the way it can connect people and the way it can help catalyze social movements. Um, you know, excuse me for going into my Professor with citations, but like, you know, there's some great work, you know, there's some great work, um, you know, on, on, uh, there's a book called hashtag activism, for instance, uh, that, that I really like, um, by, uh, by several scholars, uh, Sarah Jackson and Brooke Foucault Wells and Moya Bailey, um, who does just a really great look at the, and, you know, carrying on a tradition of like the positives that digital media networks can bring, particularly for historically marginalized communities to come together, to create a voice, right? And to advance some really positive social changes, right? But then I think it's good to look at the downsides as well. And I think Dresner, particularly in this arena, has done a really nice job of just showing, again, how I see this in my field and I feel the, the, the pressure that I feel, Right. To be like, all right, you know, hey, I'm getting invited to podcasts now, right? Like, you know, maybe I should be like, maybe I should, you know, how do I get invited to a TED Talk, right? Well, I'm going to need that one big idea, right? Hmm. And it's harder to say, you know, here's my TED Talk. 
things are complicated. It's socio-technical <laughs> systems. I think there's some positives with alternative meat, but I also think there's some downsides. You know, maybe this can be 15% of our protein source for over the next 15 years. And then who knows after that, right? Like, thank you for coming to my TED talk. Sorry, I'm not, I'm, I'm going to be on one of those, you know, TEDx's in, you know, in a, in a, in the desert somewhere. Right. Um, and, and so I think that the, professional incentives spurred in large part, but not solely by our social media environment and building on some of our psychological sort of intuitions and some of our psychological tendencies towards in-group, out-group, binary thinking, all these things together. And then you add food, which boy, if there's a place that people have takes, it's food, right? And then you layer on top of that, which I think is sometimes left out of this conversation, you know, a concept like speciesism. Right. Mm -hmm. Which when you add that on top of it and the way that or call it carnism, call it speciesism. Right. But when you add that on top of it and we know just how strong people feel about meat and animals and how attacked folks can feel when even, you know, even in the presence of a vegan. Right. Um, mm -hmm. And also, you know, some vegans who can go really hard at people. Right. And, you know, I think when you add that layer onto these other dynamics I've been talking about, you know, it's, it's not a surprise that, that we spend so much of our time just watching people fight with each other on, on Twitter and, and elsewhere. So what I'm hoping that I can do through my work. And I think conversations like this, I think you provide a really good platform. I'm, I'm part of several other platforms, you know, that bring people together like-minded people, some folks from different perspectives, both in the academic world, some in the more practice-based world. I'm just, you know, I have a bias towards dialogue um, and not dialogue with the expectation that it's going to get us all to consensus, but just a belief that um, through dialogue, we can see the other a little bit through, and it has to be a well-designed dialogue, right? And like Twitter is not designed well for it, right? But there, it has to be a well-designed space where we can really get to see the the humanity in people, the values that people are bringing, the shared values as well. And, and once we understand some of those shared values, it makes it easier for us to agree to disagree on certain things as well as find some of those opportunities for consensus and collaboration. So that that's my TED Talk. I, I still haven't gotten the invite, though. <laughs> Well, it's tough to categorize it. That's the problem, right? So it all comes down to, I mean, in, in, in a weird way, I, everything you said there was so spot on, but in terms of its observation of what's really happening right now, not just in this space, but especially in this space, is that if if people just, you know, this is myself included, right? I, I count, when I say people, I mean us as well, Um Every time you think we're sure about something, it, the, the simple exercise I try to do personally is that I realize that, and this may sound a bit out there, but I am or you are who you are only because of your relation to other people or things or, in this case, ideas. And without those, you know, in, without those relations, you don't exist. You don't have an identity of any sort, right? You don't, you're no one. If you didn't, you weren't, I'm a professor or I own this headset or a car or whatever it is, or I don't believe in, you know, I'm, I'm in this value of uh, treating people well or animals well, then I'm probably not going to be vegan or it's all these labels and identities that we all either uh, attach to ourselves or other people attach to us. 
um, so they can make sense of the world around us, right? That's that's what language and everything else exists for. And I think it's 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 crazy that we have to bring it down to that fundamental level. But I do think, especially when we, you know, when I come across some of the discourse on Twitter, which, I mean, it is the public town square now, right? So you can say, just ignore Twitter, but the news isn't much better. Most publications are the worst version of Twitter. At least Twitter has conversation. Uh, you read most food publications or the food press. It's all the same. I mean, it's it's designed, as you said, either to get people to uh, like something or get outraged by something, right? So I do think that um, maybe a good starting point, I guess my recommendation, I, I don't think this will get me a TED Talk either, but is that people should just come to the table um, if they're interested, if, if they're more interested in arguing and are convinced that technology is all bad, and I believe technology has its shortcomings, I, I do think we have to be more critical about technology. Um, it doesn't mean we need to throw it out and, and go back to finding some ancient way of farming as a solution. I think we're way past that. We need to find a bridge, really. But what I'm saying is people need to come to the table, firstly, with, you know, Answering the question, what, what, who, who are you? What, what ideas are you attached to? What values are you attached to? Right? Do you care about sustainability? Great, let's put that on the list. Do you care about equity? Let's add that to the list. Resilience, health, nutrition, um, food safety, animal abuse, worker abuse, um, you know, uh, economic efficiency, uh, the survival of our food system. You know, because if you did go back to farming the old ways, the whole system might collapse. And we all be hungry. So yeah, that's I mean, possible. Again, you know, it's the kind of thing that like we live in this moment, right? We can't, we can't turn back the clock, right? So are there, you know, would we want to turn back the clock? There's probably certain, and there's a lot of debate, right? Anthropologically, historically, you know, did people in sort of pre-agricultural societies have better lives or worse lives? Or, you know, if you read Steven Pinker, you think, it was terrible. If you read, you know, David Graeber, you think, hey, maybe actually, you know, it was much better. And, you know, and then, you know, and I also think there's tons of knowledge that is untapped and ignored and excluded that is not technological in the way we think of it, right? I think, you know, there's a number of insights from indigenous agricultural practices, for instance, mm -hmm. instance that I'm, I'm by no means an expert on, but have, you know, made some effort in recent years to get a better understanding of. And I think there's particularly around land management practices, many things that we could learn from traditional land management practices that could be extremely useful. Um, will that alone, A, what would it take to transform our entire agricultural system to that? And B, what would the implications of that be for labor, for, you know, for food access, for all these other things, right? And, and that's where I just really wish we could say, why not multiple things, right? Like, why not, you know, yeah, some of this higher tech stuff to kind of feed demand for certain types of products and certain types of places and certain types of moments, but also some of these other strategies, you know, that are, are going to have both, you know, food production benefits, but also all sorts of other potential, um, you know, ecological benefits, right? Why do we, you know, and again, I think this is, I'm preaching to the choir, right? Because this is basically what you've been saying throughout, right? Why do we feel so strongly, so sure about one or the other? I just, it's a big world. 
you know, and it's a complex food system uh, with really dramatically different topographies and dramatically different, you know, sort of ecological regions and dramatically different cultures in different places. And so I think we need it given the true crisis moments that we are in right now, right? I think we need some solutions, for lack of a better word. They're going to help us improve and tinker with the systems as they exist. I think we also need some longer term thinking and other types of solutions and experiments to help us think about radically different ways of doing things. And I really encourage everybody to go do their thing. Like, Mm -hmm. go do it. Go make it happen. Let's do it. Let's see it. Let's show it. Let's demonstrate it. Let's prove it. And I think we can do a lot of that without, you know, it's often put forth as like, it's a zero sum game, right? You can either have agroecology or you can have, you know, plant-based meats. It's like, what, wait, what, why, who said, right? Yes, Mm -hmm. there's some of this, you know, some of the capital might be flowing in a kind of zero sum way, but honestly, that capital was never going to go certain places anyway, right? So Mm -hmm. there are other forms of support that we can find, um, you know, uh, financial and otherwise. And so, you know, I just think we need to let many flowers bloom. Um, And I really encourage anybody who feels like they've got a a practice and approach that they think is going to be valuable and contribute it in positive way to the world to go out and prove it and to really focus more on that than on tearing down what you think is not good enough or is misguided, right? You can offer those critiques. I'm not saying don't critique that stuff, but, but let's, I think we need a little bit more of a culture and this is a huge issue in academia, right? Where Mm. (laughs) oftentimes we just spend a lot of time talking about what's wrong with everything. Right. Um, And it's why, you know, one of the things I've been trying to do in my work and in my career is shifting as much as possible and throughout my career, you know, to to generative projects. You know, before Mm -hmm. I did a lot of work on alternative proteins, my work was really focused on community based food access and food justice movements and working with organizations that were, again, not just kind of critiquing why this system is inequitable, but actually building some alternative institutions, Um, you know, particularly in, you know, I did a lot of work when I was doing this work and still collaborate with groups in South LA, where there's a lot of food system problems and other social inequity. Um, And, you know, what I've learned a lot about that experience is that, A, it's really hard to make generative projects work, um, but it's possible to make an impact, but it also requires a lot of collaboration, right? And these things don't work autonomously. Um, and then also that that has not prevented other folks from advancing other kinds of initiatives at the same time, right? And and in my work, I've tried to do, I, I, I try to do both, right? I want to focus on, in some of my work, on the food access, food justice work. I continue to do that, but I'm also passionate about some of these animal issues and the possibilities of animal protein. And, and there are some moments where there's a confluence between those ideas, right? Again, it's a little bit of like... I, I, in some ways, I'm striving to do a little more of that public intellectual work as opposed to the thought leader work, right? Because I'm just not convinced there's one big idea, there's one big solution. Um, and, you know, I have the luxury of being able to be in a position where I'm able to dabble in these different areas and provide support to groups that are working on the ground. But kind of big picture, I would just say, you know, let's get out there and do stuff, right? Let's get out yeah. there, <laughs> do stuff, make stuff happen. You know, I mean, I think of, you know, Plantega, right, as, as a great example of, you know, all right, there's this issue, right? Well, let's let's create, let's get creative and and let's make something that's fun, that's enjoyable, that has some positive benefits, but that also I know, you know, in, in having conversations with you and also 
going to my local Plantega um, is also evolving, right? And changing and, and un- be- trying to better understand its, its context, its location, its sourcing, it's all that stuff. And so, um, you know, I'm just a big fan of anybody. I'm not going to begrudge anybody who's doing something, you know, that is kind of my mantra in life. It's what I tell my students all the time. Just show up, show up, yeah. do something, do something productive and also be willing to make a shift if you think what you're working on in that given moment isn't taking you to the place that, that you want to go and that you think is being productive and effective. And so I just think we need more of that in, in food system conversations. And I think there's, the work is out there. The work is happening. So I think also you know, what we need to continue to do is highlight those folks who are doing generative work um, and, and maybe try to spend a little less time. This is me talking to myself here. Spend a little less time just fighting about this stuff on the internet and a little <laughs> more time doing. Although, again, I think the fighting on the internet, it does matter too because it shapes public consciousness i so relate to everything you're saying because i i think i've uh, i find that tension myself where i i like to talk about these issues and i don't necessarily like to argue about them but i like to to bring different viewpoints to the surface so we can think more critically and maybe some of that sounds like an argument sometimes um with me in the room um i like doing that but at the same time if i do that only i i find myself getting very disillusioned and cynical um and and bitter and critical which maybe some people don't mind that and i think we do need the people some people to be just critics and we need some people to just call bullshit and everything and i think that's great because it highlights things that uh, in a clear simple way that other people perhaps are not willing to say and i and i and i applaud them for playing that role maybe that's just not the role for me or you perhaps um some people need to play that role but I, I find that tension myself where I, I love having the conversations and engaging with people, but then I've also spent months not doing that and just focusing on, on building something and creating something. I'd love to get a sense of where you think you'd want to spend your time um, because it sort of comes down to that, right? If you can't change everyone and you can't tell people what to think and some people are just going to have their minds made up that convincing people to eat lentils is all we need to do and we shouldn't do anything else and why waste all this money that can be used elsewhere theoretically where do you want to spend your time given your unique view of things yeah i think where i've been spending a lot of time and and where i see a lot of my work going is really at the interface of you know social justice in the food system and technological innovation Um, and trying to find, you know, I've, I've written about some of this stuff. I use this term food tech justice. Um, I've written a couple of papers trying to kind of think through what this concept might look like. Um, You know, but this idea that there's this bifurcation in the field between those who are doing work that goes by the name of, you know, food justice or in other arenas, you know, sometimes food sovereignty, things like that. And that tends to be, you know, almost, exclusively very often kind of associated with a very low tech way of going about things, going about change in the food system. Um, And then you've got a lot of the technology, which tends to, I think, be quite promising in many ways, but it's often mostly associated with much more kind of reformist 
kind of approaches to changing the food system. Um, some that I think have some real value and ability to scale in some positive ways, but in other ways might just be kind of tinkering around the edges and, and not fundamentally, fundamentally getting to some of the roots of, of our problems when it comes to food inequality and, and food, uns- you know, the, the lack of sustainability in our food system. So where I've been spending a lot of time the last couple of years, particularly in alternative proteins, but also in some other arenas, thinking about, you know, new forms of urban agriculture, as an example, um, you know, even some areas like on-farm technology, that's not been my main area, but but I, I know some folks and have, you know, been engaged in some conversations and collaborations with thinking about how digital technology might be useful for, you know, for all sorts of scales of farmers and different kinds of farming. But to me, that's like, that's the sweet spot. And that's what I'd really love to work on both as an academic, as a researcher, documenting this stuff, exploring this stuff, but also as an applied scholar, an engaged scholar, trying to work with projects and programs um, that try to figure out how do we use technology to advance social, economic, racial justice and sustainability and health. Um, And I just think, you know, seeding technology to those who don't put issues of justice at the forefront um, is really dangerous. Um, and I also think, um, you know, that, 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 that seeding justice to those who don't put t- technology <laughs> in the conversation at all is also quite dangerous. Um, and so that's the kind of confluence of things that I'm hoping to continue to work on um, again, through some academic scholarship, but but I'm also hoping to you know continue to develop some more applied projects and programs, as well as see if there are projects and programs that are out there already that I might be able to collaborate with, support uh, you know as as a researcher, as an advocate um, in terms of the the skill set that I bring to the table. So that's where I personally see the action for me, and that's what I sort of feel called to. Kind of this confluence of of issues that have mattered a lot to me in my career thus far, and where I've spent the last couple of years and, and the next several, at least where, where I see my attention headed toward. Despite your best efforts, you've still found yourself with an idea for your tech talk, Ted talk, which is food tech justice. I think that's, uh, I think you just summed that up really well, which I think uh, sort of brings all the various little uh, competing ideas we've been exploring today and, and and talks about how we can maybe perhaps develop a framework to to balance both sides and and truly find some some solutions that the that the world needs. Uh, I'm going to close out with with a question I, I often ask, and I and I you're free to answer it in any way you want to. Um, but what do you hope the food system looks like, say, in the year 2050? I've heard you ask other people this question before, and I failed to prep an answer. So, um, you know, I think what I hope it looks like, uh, is one that really does find a a stronger balance. And I think, I think balance is a, is a key word, um, for food and, and something also that I, you know, I talked to, I've done some, as I mentioned, I've done some, you know, focus groups with consumers and everyday people about what they want to see in the food system. And, you know, I think, you know, finding that balance between the traditional and the futuristic, the technological and the, and the, you know, the sort of ancestral in different ways. Um, I would love to see a a food system that, that has found some balance um, in terms of a planetary balance, 
um, in terms of balance between the haves and the have-nots. Um, so greater distribution of, of resources and health and equity within our food system, but also on this point about a balance where we kind of find the right sweet spot for the level of technological innovation that folks feel is feel comfortable with that can also advance a, you know, a, a kind of global food system that, that can be efficient and scalable in productive ways, but doesn't do so, doesn't do so at the expense of cultural food traditions that really matter to people. And that, you know, that, that is the stuff of so many of our relationships, right? So I definitely don't, you know, envision that future food system that's just us, you know, like, uh, you know, I was actually showing my students like clips of like the Jetsons and things like that recently of like the future food, you know, it's like these pellets and vending machines, et cetera, right? Like, no, we, I don't want to lose that dinner table either. It matters to so many people. And I think we need more generations that bring family and friends together around the pre preparation of, of good food. Um, but I, I think we also need to figure out ways to use technology to, you know, make that a more balanced, sustainable uh, approach. So that's the world that I would love to see in, in 2051, where we just come to a better balance in our food system, but also a little balance, better balance in our, in our culture and in our interactions with each other. Um, because I think those are not disconnected. The, the sort of very unbalanced, level of discourse that I think we all feel, especially the last six years, right, in the US and, and globally, just feels like everything's kind of out of balance in the way we interact with each other and the way we talk to each other. So I, I think if we find a little better balance in how we can engage with each other, that might go along well with a more balanced food system. And likewise, if we find a little more balance in the food system, that might ha ha help us have some more balanced conversations at the dinner table. Garrett, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. I appreciate you taking the time to share your unique and balanced perspective of uh, the food system. So I appreciate it. I appreciate it so much. It's a, a real pleasure to be uh, on, on, the, on the podcast and appreciate the platform that you provide here for some really great conversations. So thank you. You've been listening to Eat for the Planet with Nils Zacharias. If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to show your support, all you have to do is subscribe to this show and rate and review it. To learn more about this podcast or my work, go to eftp.co. That's eftp.co. Thank you for listening.